So let's begin our reading then, 2 Samuel 5, beginning in verse 9. Let us hear God's word. Then David dwelt in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built all round from the millow and inward. So David went on and became great, and the Lord God of hosts was with him. Then Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, and cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built David a house. So David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he had come from Hebron. Also more sons and daughters were born to David. Now these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhiah, Elishema, Eliadah, and Eliphalet. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. <clears throat> well, last time we began this new section. It begins here in chapter 5, verse 6, and takes us through chapter 10. And the focus here, of course, is uh, all the success of David, how God blesses him in a number of ways. So <clears throat> um, we, of course, began chapter 5 here in this part of the this section, beginning in verse 6, by um, uh, observing that there's some things out of order, and we'll see that uh, here tonight, especially uh, verses uh, 11 and following. Um, and uh, based on First Chronicles chapter 11, it suggests to us that we should keep the order that is given here, especially in regard to the conquering of Jebus and then the conquering of the Philistines. There are some debates, some try to switch the order chronologically, which is possible, uh, but seems like the order here is probably how it was done. But what is clear is that for the author, the most significant thing of these several things in chapter 5 is that David conquers Jerusalem, and he establishes his new capital here. This city was... Um, in existence for well over a hundred uh, a thousand years prior to this and now is established as the capital and is uh, more or less such for another thousand years and then of course we see it as the spiritual city uh, in heaven and so we saw that uh, after Joshua after Je Judah and Benjamin failing to conquer the Jebusites now 400 years later David easily defeats them because God was on his side. Um, and uh, Joab, though there's some debate on how all this happened, most likely climbed up the water shaft into the city, inside of the city, and led his soldiers with him and such, and they conquered the Jebusites. And so like Joshua in the conquest, David here hates all those who hate God and helped to finish what Joshua started. So we come now to this next part. You might call this a smorgasbord of, of events here for David's life and his, his rule. And uh, we have three of them now in verses 9 through 16. Three more ways that God blessed uh, David. So verses 9 and 10, we see Jerusalem will be built up by David. Verses 11 and 12, David will have 
these foreign relations with Hiram. And then in verses 13 to 16, David has more children and focus on his family here. All right, well, let's look then at verse 9. Then David dwelt in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built all around from the millow and inward. All right, well, first of all, notice the connection with verse 7. David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. And so though Zion's not mentioned here, obviously it's referring to the same thing. Um, you recall from what I said last time, uh, that the city of Jerusalem at this time was probably only 11 to 12 acres in size. So if you think of, of our property, you think of the end of the pasture and come up the pasture with the barn and our house and all the buildings and up through the hay field and maybe beyond Tracy's a little bit, hey, there's your 11 to 12 acres. That's not even including uh, the woods that we have. So it's not that big, really, but this would be the size of, um, of Jerusalem, and Zion was likely the fortress on the southeastern side of the city. And so here's where I didn't gravel in for myself. Uh, now, would you bring me one of those maps or those uh, pictures of Jerusalem, please? Um, and so as you look at these two pictures here, the, um, the one for David's Jerusalem here, first of all, You'll see here uh, a little description uh, about it. And notice the, the perspective here. The north and south runs at this diagonal. And you see the Hinnom Valley, the Kidron Valley. You see some of the elevation markers there uh, and so forth. Um, but you'll see the, um, the city itself. Now, all the, the buildings are artist description. You'll see that uh, described there on the right there, some of the words there. Um, but the stronghold, you see the southeastern side uh, probably is where it was, and the gate there uh, at the south. Um, now you also notice uh, that square at the top and an arrow pointing to it. That more specifically would be Mount Moriah, where Abraham brought Isaac to sacrifice him. And so um, we'll return to that here in just a moment. Um, all right, well, David obviously moves his family from Hebron to Jerusalem. And so he brings his six wives and six sons at this point. Of course, now Michael has returned to him, so that wife as well. Um, he would have brought whatever possessions he would have had. And then, of course, all the people who were ruling with him. So obviously Joab and surely uh, many others. And so they settle now here in Jerusalem and its surrounding areas. All right, now, <clears throat> the much more um, disputed meaning is the rest of the verse. What is the millow? Um, it's not um, uh, something we might think of, probably. But uh, most likely it's not a reference to a specific building or city or place or something like that but referring to leveling the ground of the city. So again, if you think of our property, hey, just even in the pasture, it goes down a long way from a, um, where our house is down to the bottom of the pasture. You're, you're going down uh, a number of feet in elevation. Well, similarly here on the top of uh, the mountain where Jerusalem was, it wasn't very flat. <laughs> and so they would fill it in. 
And most likely this is the reference. In my Bible, it says landfill for a footnote. But of course, we think of a big garbage dump. Um, but they use land, they use rocks to fill in these lower places to make it more level. And so imagine then uh, um, a, a built up ground so they could build. And they probably had various terraces, so different elevations. They probably had uh, um, some support walls here, maybe some buttresses or something to that effect. Uh, to, to hold it in place. And so maybe you had a certain elevation, like even here in the church, you know, down like this. You had a support wall here, and then you have a higher elevation and, and so forth. So they probably had a variety of elevations in the city, um, but much closer to being level than what you would expect just in, you know, the natural surroundings. And so this is probably what is meant, though there is debate. Some want to see it much more specific, um, and in fact, archaeology uh, suggests to us that David took what was done in Jebus and expanded it. And some have said specifically expanded about 2,000 square feet. Uh, I'm not sure. I haven't been convinced anyway that we can be that specific. But whatever the case, it does sound like this is the general idea that is being uh, described. All right, now, here's where I want us to look at Solomon's Jerusalem, so the other picture here for us. See how much bigger it is. It's over twice as big. Solomon expands the part there in the lower part of the picture uh, further northward, and then it, it broadens out, and you see where the temple is. It's very near to where uh, Mount Moriah was, maybe not the exact place where Abraham was going to kill Isaac, but certainly close to it. And you'll see the walls expanded. Again, the, the different buildings are the artist's representation here. Uh, but it gives you a, a, a sense of how much bigger Solomon made it. Um, and he, too, expanded the millow. <laughs> so let's turn here just a moment to 1 Kings chapter 9. And uh, we'll look at a, a variety of passages tonight as well as we did last week. So in 1 Kings 9, uh, here is uh, a description of some of the things that Solomon did. And note especially verse 15. This is the reason for the labor force which King Solomon raised to build the house of the Lord, of course, his own house, the Millow, the wall of Jerusalem, and in the three cities, Hatzor, Megiddo, and Getzer. And those would have been built up more, uh, not brand new. And so again, the millow is likely a reference to these terraces and, and the leveling of the ground. Um, all right, so some debate in that way, but that's uh, likely how we should understand it. Now let's turn to First Chronicles chapter 11. Now I, I, I have us turn back here a few times tonight, so uh, stick something here. But first of all, in chapter 11, uh, note the description here in verses 7 to 9. This is our parallel passage. Note there are a few different uh, differences here. Verse 7 of 1 Chronicles 11, that David dwelt in the stronghold, therefore the city, excuse me, they called it the city of David, and they built the city around it from the millow to the surrounding area. So it sounds like David may have expanded the city itself, not just the millow here in this description. Uh, Joab repaired the rest of the city, so probably there was some destruction during the battle, uh, maybe things had declined in certain ways over the years. 
Uh, Joab leads in that way. And so David, when on, became great, and the Lord of hosts was with him. So we see a little bit uh, of additional information here um, in this regard. So then back to 2 Samuel uh, in chapter 5 here, now verse 10. So David went on and became great, and the Lord God of hosts was with him. This really is the most important idea, isn't it? It's the most important idea here for David and certainly for us. It's not because of good fortune that we have success. It's not because the stars aligned or some football gods allowed the Steelers to make it or something to that effect. It's not because David is exceptionally talented. It's because God was with him. And this is certainly nothing new. Let me read a few passages here. First of all, chapter 16 of 1 Samuel and verse 18. Then one of the servants answered and said, Look, I have seen his son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a handsome person, and the Lord is with him. Then in chapter 18, after defeating Goliath here, verse 12 Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. And then in verse 14, uh, David behaved wisely in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. And then down to verse, uh, verse 28, Saul saw and knew the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. And we could look at some other places, but this is ultimately the reason why we succeed in anything. And in light of what we've seen in Romans... It's especially true, isn't it? Hey, we have nothing to offer. There's nothing that we can do that is not filled with sinfulness in some way or another. So how can we have really any success before the Lord on our own? We need the Lord. We need the finished work of Christ. We need the Spirit to be working in us. And that is what we see here with David. And as I've said... A number of times over the years, this is the theme of the Bible. The main point of all the scriptures is simply, I will be your God, you will be my people. I will be with you. This is what gives God the glory. This is how we are saved. This is how we are sanctified. It's all about God being with us. And so not surprisingly then, God's personal name, Yahweh, has this idea. It not only communicates being in existence, it also communicates God's presence. He is with us. Of course, one of the uh, key names of Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. In Matthew 28, verse 20, Jesus said, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. And that is fulfilled in the coming of the Holy Spirit. In Revelation 21, we see this, right? The new Jerusalem comes down and so forth, and we see God is our God. We are his people. He is with us. There is no more weeping and crying and so forth. And so the point is simple. David is being successful, but it's not because of his wonderful ingenuity and Joab's success climbing up this water shaft or any of these other things. Ultimately, any success David has, any success we have, is because God is with us. And so note this very important idea. All right, well, let's keep going now. Then, verse 11. Then Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built David a house. 
All right, so now we shift from David building up Jerusalem to now David having a house built for him. And note this international connection, this foreign relationship here. Now, um, let me just uh, briefly, I'll read this here for us. This is First Chronicles chapter 14. Verses 1 and 2 is the parallel, and it says, Now Hiram king of Tyre sent messengers to David and cedar trees with masons and carpenters to build him a house. So David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, for his kingdom was highly exalted for the sake of his people Israel. So virtually identical uh, wording. Let's turn then together to 1 Kings chapter 5. One of the things that uh, gets ink spilled here is uh, how do we connect Hiram and David and Hiram and Solomon? Um, And so 1 Kings chapter 5 verse 1 says, Now Hiram king of Tyre sent his servants to Solomon because he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father, for Hiram had always loved David. And then down in verse 7, so it was when Hiram heard the words of Solomon that he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord this day, for he has given David a wise son over this great people. And then lastly, verse 12, the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he had promised him, and there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a treaty together. All right, there are a few other verses we could look at here in this section, but obviously we see Hiram not only with David, but also with Solomon. If, if we put this at the very beginning of David's rule in Jerusalem, right, you're talking 33 years plus now Solomon, and it is possible to uh, have Hiram overlap that. But um, from what I understand, relatively recently, like within the last generation or so, some archaeological evidence and documents have shown that Hiram did not start ruling until about 980 B.C. Okay. And so if David starts ruling in 1003 B.C. in Jerusalem, that's about 23 years later, which would suggest to us then, right, that Hiram and him building David a house and so forth, right? This all happened toward the end of David's rule in Jerusalem, within the last 10 years of his death. Now, some have tried to uh, counter this uh, new information by saying, you know, Hiram is kind of like the name Pharaoh or Caesar. It was a title. It wasn't necessarily a personal name. And so you have Hiram which was actually the father or grandfather with David and the son or grandson with Solomon, and some have gone in that direction. But uh, I'm inclined to agree with those who say this is just the author moving this event that happened much later, uh, much earlier here in the description in chapter 5, to highlight the main point. David is building up Jerusalem, and now David's going to get his own house too. So again, there's, there's some... Uh, debate over all of this. Now, as for Hiram, he is the king of Tyre, one of the most powerful city-states in the Mediterranean world at this time, and for several centuries. Uh, they were very well known for their trade, for their defenses, and here now, simply Hiram wants good relations with David. Okay. Uh, Tyre, here's a, <coughs> where I want to make reference to the map here briefly. But you'll see on um, uh, the, uh, either one of the sides of this map that I typically use, you see where Tyre is. 
and on the land of the 12 tribes anyway, you, you can kind of see that it was an island right off the coast. And they had this causeway they built out to it and so forth. And uh, <clears throat> it was um, therefore dependent on trade. And it's not like they had thousands of acres where they can raise their own crops or something like that. So they depended on trade for food and supplies for their economy. And so here now comes Hiram to David and says, hey, let's uh, have some good trading relations for our benefit, for your benefit, you know, this kind of idea. And so uh, in wanting these good relations for trade, he basically appeals to David and says, hey, I'll build you a house if you let us do this. And so here's the idea. And so uh, David then received cedar wood as well as craftsmen for these trade rights. Now, from what we understand at this point now, around 1000 BC, cedar trees in the area were much more rare. Right? You remember singing about the cedars of Lebanon, you know, Psalm 40, uh, was it 45 or something like that anyway. Um, and uh, uh, at this point, they were much more rare, so therefore more valuable. And as you may know, cedar is a, a great wood to use uh, for a variety of reasons, in particular for weathering. You can have cedar decks, cedar siding, cedar docks even, because they're going to survive for a number of years in the weather. And of course, it smells good. Even just walking by a cedar tree or something, you can have that, that very uh, fragrant smell. So we use it for paneling, we use it for closets or chests for our clothes or something like that. And so Hiram's not coming and just giving him some leftover OSB or something. Um, he is trading uh, to build a house out of cedar. It's very, very nice. And so here you have it. David now has a palace. Prior to that, remember, he's in the stronghold. So if we're right here in our dating, David is living in the stronghold, which possibly was made out of stone or Part of it or something like that and now he's going to have a house of cedar and so this may be in part why the author puts it here because David is living in the stronghold now he's going to live in a cedar house. Now as for archaeology on this point there has not at least again until recently maybe something very recently has been discovered but from what I understand uh, there is no evidence of David's house archaeologically. Uh, there's no written evidence that has been found in, in regard to it. But there has been some found in regard to Solomon's house in Megiddo. So again, you may want to look at your map here further to the north. Remember, uh, Solomon has a rather large family to house. And so anyway, they found one of his houses in Megiddo. And here are the dimensions. 70 feet square with, a, with large halls a dozen rooms, an inner courtyard, two stories, and a guard tower. We don't know how big David's house was, but maybe it was something like this. David already had six wives, uh, plus Michael, and then the children, and of course several more here now that he is in Jerusalem. And so um, the stronghold was getting rather tight, you might say. All right, so... <clears throat> A little description here, verse 11, which brings us into verse 12. 
So David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. All right, again, assuming the 980 BC time frame, we're getting toward the end of David's rule. Maybe it's at this point that David now is fully convinced that God is on his side. Um, On the other hand, if this is referring to something earlier um, in David's rule, then this also is the same point. The emphasis here, of course, is on the foreign alliance, having his own house now. And so these kinds of events were encouraging to David. Now, let me mention, there's a few things to mention here. First of all, let me mention this. Um, Sometimes you hear people say that it was wrong in every scenario for Israel to have any kind of treaty with non-Israelites. I don't think there's anything in this text here, uh, or even with Solomon and Hiram and such, that would indicate that this was wrong. I think the, the distinction is here. It's not wrong to be neighborly. It's not wrong to have connections with your neighbors, even if they're unbelievers. Um, but it is wrong to trust in your neighbors, in your alliances, in your treaties, instead of trusting in God. And so that's where the rub is. It's not wrong to have a relationship with a foreign king, but if you're going to trust the foreign king instead of Yahweh, then that's the problem. And so um, that's the one point <clears throat> here to mention. The, the other point then is this idea of proof. You know, sometimes we think of uh, God and David having a conversation every day <laughs> or something to that effect. Um, but if we go simply by the times it's described for us in the text, David had an encounter with the Lord roughly five to ten times. You know, how do you handle some of them? But you have the Urim and Thummim where God answers. You have the prophets. Think of Nathan and Bathsheba and so forth. Um, and, uh, and so based on these things, David had an encounter with the Lord, something that we don't have in terms of this very direct connection. Uh, but, you know, maybe you know, five to ten times or something like that. For the rest of the time, David was like us. Hey, we go through our day, and things happen providentially, and we wonder, okay, Lord, what are you trying to tell me here? You know, and, and we wonder. We, we, we try to figure out God's providence, his message that he is giving to us. And when good things happen, when bad things happen, and so forth. Well, the text is emphasizing that David's success here, especially now with Hiram and this house that was built for him, that this was very, if you will, clear evidence to David that God really is with him. There were many other ways that showed God was with him, but this is the one that the text emphasized. This one maybe more than anything else convinced David. Um Maybe he let his guard down after that and started looking around and saw Bathsheba or something. We don't know how it all fits together. But clearly, uh, God is with David, and there's no indication that Saul ever had a house like this, nor had a relationship with a foreign king in such a way as this. And so God is exalting David and his kingdom. Now note then also this point. Do you see the end of the verse? 
It says, for the sake of his people Israel. Now notice what this teaches us. God is not elevating David for David's sake. Though that's partly true. It's not for David's pride. It's not for David to have a really nice house and money and power and prestige and glory. It's not really for David's sake, though that's partly true. It's ultimately for the sake of Israel, for all of God's people. And so it's not like David gets into office and leaves and now has millions of dollars all of a sudden, like the Obamas and Clintons and Bidens and so on, and even McConnells and Boehners and Bushes. Some of them had money coming in. Many of them didn't. Uh, That's not what we're talking about here. David is different. God prospers David for God's glory and for the benefit of the people. David is not despotic, unlike Saul, who was very much that way because of his sinfulness, and even Solomon because of his labor force. And David is far from perfect. But you see that God is blessing David for the sake of his people in this way. So in uh, Deuteronomy 17, I recall this section here regarding kings. Um, uh, God has said that the king must uh, write down the law and, and review it regularly. And so in verse 20, it says that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren. He may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left. He may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. Hey, one of the reasons why we read God's law is to humble us. So that we won't think that we're better than others. Isn't that exactly what Paul's been doing in Romans? It's pretty obvious that most of the leaders in our country are not reading the Bible. Because they elevate themselves above us. But that's designed to do the exact opposite. And in light of what we see here in 2 Samuel 5 and verse 12, David is, in fact, writing Scripture as we know it. And um, you'll see some of the humility in this way. And so though David is chosen by God, he is not free to do whatever he wants. So that last part of the verse is highlighting this point. So let me end this thought then by having us turn a moment to Matt, uh, excuse me, Mark chapter 10. And Jesus highlights this point for us as well. In Mark chapter 10, uh, let's begin in verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. He said to them, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, grant us that we may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? They said to him, we are able. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink. With the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give for it is for those for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. 
yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Now most uh, have said that verse 45 is the theme of Mark, that theme verse. And this is really what we are seeing at the end of 2 Samuel 5, verse 12. God is doing this for the sake of his people. He's establishing a ruler who, imperfectly, is a servant leader, you might say. David is relying on the Lord in what he does. We wish he would have done it perfectly, of course, but he didn't. Uh, but we do see some of these these blessings. All right, well, we could obviously say a whole lot more in that regard. But notice David's success as God is with him, and even here what we see in verse 12, David relying on the Lord. All right, well, let's look now at this third subsection tonight, verse 13. I'll read all these verses here now. Uh, and David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he had come from Hebron. Also more sons and daughters were born to David. Now these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhiah, Elishema, Eliadah, and Eliphalet. All right. Um, <clears throat> here's where I want us to look at a uh, variety of passages here especially. Let's turn back to chapter 3, first of all. And you recall the sons that were born to him in Hebron. And so chapter 3, verse 2. Sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon by Ahinoam the Jezreelitess. His second, Kiliah by Abigail, the widow of Nabal the Carmelite. The third, Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Hagith. The fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital. The sixth, Ithraon by David's wife, Eglah. They were born to David in Hebron. Then as you look later in chapter 3, verses 13 and following, remember that's the description of David bringing Michael back. And this was part of the condition and such. And so now his seventh wife is back with him. And so now as we come here to chapter 5, more wives, concubines, more children are born to David now that he is in Jerusalem. Here in chapter 5, 11 sons are listed by name. But notice no wives' names are listed here. All right, let's turn then to 1 Chronicles chapter 14. 1 Chronicles 14. <clears throat> Beginning of verse 3. Note it says, there's a couple differences here. Um, and David took more wives in Jerusalem, and David begot more sons and daughters. And these are the names of his children whom he had in Jerusalem. Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Elpalet, Noga, Nepheg, Japhiah, Elishema, Be'eliadah, and Eliphalet. All right, now maybe you noticed a few differences in the names. Uh, some of them are just spelling differences. Uh, but notice there are 13 sons listed here, not 11. That's because in verse 5, we have El Palette, 
And in verse 6, Noga. These are the two additional names. Um, in verse 7, <coughs> Beliada versus Eliada. <coughs> and then a few other spelling differences. All right, now let's turn back to chapter 3 here in First Chronicles. For here we have the uh, genealogy of David, and notice verses 1 to 4, of course, is in Hebron. And then in verse 5, these were born to him in Jerusalem. Again, note some of the spelling differences. Shemaiah, Shobab, Nathan, and Solomon. Four by Bathsheba, the daughter of Amiel. Of course, we know her better by, as Bathsheba. Here's another spelling difference. Also, there were Ibhar, Elishama, Eliphalet, Noga, Nephig, Japhia, Elishama, Eliadah, and Nephilet, nine in all. So there's your 13, just like we saw in chapter 14. Then verse 9. These are all the sons of David besides the sons of the concubines and Tamar, their sister. All right, so as we put all this together then, notice that David had 13 sons by wives in Jerusalem, in addition to the six that he had in uh, Hebron. We don't know how many wives he has. Obviously, Bathsheba has four sons. So you figure he probably has at least three more wives. He might have another six more. We don't know for sure. And yet, <coughs> altogether then, David has 20 children by name, if you include Tamar. But then it says, here in chapter 3, that you got to add the concubines and their children. And that's an old, untold number. Maybe it was another dozen, maybe it was another 20 children. We don't know. However many children David had, however many wives he had, he had a whole bunch of them. Now Solomon puts him to shame in that regard, of course, but he had many. All right, now, you remember, uh, may remember back in chapter 3, uh, I, I took some time developing the meaning of the names of David's sons and some of the things that that teaches us. Let me just highlight a few of them here. Uh, the name's Shobab. Okay. It means rebellious. So at least David had one rebellious son of the children he had in Jerusalem. Did he join in with Absalom? Did he reject Yahweh? Now, we don't know what the rebellion was all about. Uh, secondly, of course, we have Solomon. <clears throat> we know Solomon very well. He's the 10th son listed here by name for David. His name means peace. And he certainly did bring a lot of peace and prosperity. Unfortunately, a few other bad things. Now, notice also then some of these names. Elishua, Eliphalet, Elishama. Okay, some of these different names. Again, a little different spellings for some of them. Uh, but it simply means, my God is salvation, my God delivers, my God hears for these three different names. Which may suggest that David named these sons these names as it corresponded with some of the events in David's life. For example, maybe he had one of these sons when God delivered him in battle against the Philistines, or possibly even from his own son, Absalom. Um, 
But clearly in the scriptures, we see names are associated with events, and so it's possible that these names are associated with something God did in David's life uh, at that moment. Now notice also this difference. Do you remember with Saul's family? We had Ish-bosheth and Mephibosheth. And you may recall that Basheth means shame. So you have shame in Saul's family. You don't have that name being used here in David's family. There is not shame in David's family. Now, there was some rebellion. Not all of his children were believers. But note the contrast with Saul's family in this way. Now also, um, you may recall from chapter 3 in 2 Samuel that uh, at the very least, uh, Absalom's mother was a non-Israelite, right? The king of Geshur, so clearly that was a foreign alliance marriage. Uh, It is quite likely that these marriages that David had in Jerusalem were similar. It's possible that David married someone of Jebus, uh, maybe more likely that he married from the different tribes in Israel, maybe especially the tribe of Benjamin, uh, as uh, tribal alliances here through marriage, uh, maybe from other nations. Um, doesn't say uh, any daughter of Hiram here, but it's possible something like that happened. As for Bathsheba, David's just attracted to her. There's <laughs> no political alliance there at all. But as for the others, maybe all of them were. All right, so we come then again to this theme that we saw in 1 Samuel and even back in chapter 3. And that is, David is a mixed bag, like us all. From the world's perspective, David is very blessed. He has 20 children easily at minimum, maybe 40 or 60 or something like that. He has, what, at least 10 wives, probably? And from the world's perspective at the time, this clearly showed that David was successful and blessed by God. But as we've said before, Deuteronomy 17, verse 17, God says that the king must not multiply wives. And so David then is disobeying God here in this way. Now, let me say it in this, um, uh, in this way and connect it with what we've been seeing in Romans. All of us fail to meet God's standards perfectly. But even as we are seeking to obey God in our sanctification, in some ways we may be successful, but it's only due to God working in us, Right? And, of course, it's never perfect. But in our sanctification, every one of us here has some holes. And some of those holes are quite gaping and glaring. Our sanctification is very much, um, if you will, behind in those particular ways. That is certainly the case for David here. We, of course, should strive to be consistent in our holiness and our sanctification. But ultimately, the blessings are not because of us. Yes, we need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. I'm not trying to minimize our responsibility. 
But ultimately, the reason why we receive any blessing is because God is with us. Because he has given us his spirit. He has given us his son. Because of Jesus' obedience for us, God can bless David with all these things. Even though David was so way off in his obedience regarding all these wives and children. God can bless you and me because Jesus was perfect. God can bless you and me because the Spirit is working in us and God and his justice has been satisfied. So the blessings of the covenant can be given to us because our covenant keeper obeyed everything. That was true for David and it's true for us. We may not have 20 wives or whatever David had, okay? but we do have areas in our life where we are way short of God's standards. And God blesses us regardless. Okay. All right, now let me uh, um, bring all of this to a conclusion here tonight in this way. Obviously, uh, David is someone that we look up to. David is someone we might say is a hero of the faith. But ultimately, of course, he is not our greatest hero. He has strength. He also has folly. He is blessed. But we see at least an anticipation of problems to come. And so therefore, we look for a greater king. So let's make the connection here in this way. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 1. In Matthew chapter 1, uh, here we have the genealogy of Christ. And notice he begins with Abraham and works his way forward in time to Jesus. And uh, you'll see there, especially in verse 6, Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Um, and that takes us down then to Jesus. And so there are 14 generations three times. So 42 generations are listed here. And again, David through Solomon. But let's turn to Luke chapter 3 here a moment. It has raised many questions, of course. And Luke chapter 3, verses 23 and following, notice that Luke gives us the genealogy of Jesus, and he begins with Jesus and works backward in time. And notice he goes all the way back to Adam, the son of God. And so not just to Abraham. And there are 77 generations if you include God in this list. Okay. But notice especially verse 31. The son of Malaya, the son of Manon, the son of Manathah, the son of Nathan, the son of David. Note the difference. Because... Luke here is tracing the line of Christ through David and his son Nathan and not Solomon like in, Luke, in uh, Matthew. There are some different names. Both of them say Joseph. Jesus is the son of Joseph. We see it here uh, in verse 23. Hey, Matthew has the same thing. Some have suggested one is the line of Mary, one is the line of Joseph, and so on. Um, the kingly line obviously is emphasized in Matthew, but even the non-kingly line here in Luke leads us to Christ. I thought of this very simply because we see uh, all these children of David. 
and it's specifically Solomon and Nathan that leads us to our true hero, not David, but the greater son of David, our perfect king, and that is Jesus. And so as God was with David, so God is with Jesus. We see that at his baptism especially. Okay? We see Jesus himself is God with us. That's not true of David. And we see not somebody else be building Jesus a palace, but Jesus is in heaven building us a palace in the New Jerusalem. And so as, as we look at these things, and David is built up in certain ways in 2 Samuel 5, um, we are also reminded that it's ultimately God and ultimately the greater son of David that is our focus. So anyway, a few thoughts for us here tonight from these verses to seek to understand them better. And so next time we'll look at the battle with the Philistines. Lord willing, let's pray together. <clears throat> our Father and God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, all these um, historical details reminding us yet again that all these things really happened. This isn't just some made-up story that's going to be turned into a movie, uh, but it's a real story um, that... Um, that really happened and that you worked in the lives of these people and in particular with David. We are thankful, Lord, for these historical events and the description to, to uh, as it were, make the truths, the spiritual truths even more real for us. And so we thank you for this, Lord. We do pray that you would always remind us that our success is based on your presence with us. And that all of our success is not for our own glory and our own grandeur, but for the sake of your people, for those around us, and so forth. We pray also, Lord, that you would help us to see those holes in our sanctification. Unlike David, who appears to have not seen his sin in this way, help us to see our sins, and that we might... Um, repent and turn to you and seek to be even more godly. We are thankful most of all that Christ has come, the son of David, who had no holes in his sanctification, but obeyed perfectly, and so therefore uh, secured the blessings of the covenant so that we can be blessed. And so, Lord, we thank you for this, and uh, we pray, Lord, that we then would honor you in all that we do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.